The message from God's Word is coming from Psalm 59, but I'd like you to turn also to 1 Samuel 19 and just put your finger in that spot so that we can read both passages at the same time. I guess it wouldn't be exactly at the same time. That would be really a a feat of intelligence. We're going to read... 1 Samuel 19, beginning in verse 11 through 17, and then I'll read Psalm 59. 1 Samuel 19, verse 11, and then Psalm 59. Please remain seated. It's a long passage, but hear God's holy and inspired word. 1 Samuel 19, 11. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window. He fled and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes. When Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up here to the, in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed, and the pillow of goat's hair was at the head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus, and let my enemy go, so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? Now to Psalm 59 the psalm written by David to the choir master according to do not destroy a mitcom of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him deliver me from my enemies O my God protect me from those who rise up against me deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men for behold they lie in wait for my life fierce men stir up strife against me For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake, come meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, our God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil, Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips. For who, they think, will hear us? But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. 
I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Amen. Let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Triune God, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you that these are words of life. There is nothing else so trustworthy and true in this entire world than your word. We thank you for the great gift, and we pray that you would implant it in our hearts, that you would change us, that we would understand the great truths contained in this passage. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we studied last week, of course, 1 Samuel 19. The author of Samuel recounted four times how David was delivered from Saul. Four times in one chapter. This was one of the four. We see Saul in great decline under the judgment of God. God even sending a tormenting spirit to him. But David, on the other hand, is seeing success at every turn. Everyone loves David, including Saul's own family, his own son, his daughter. And Saul is desperately trying to kill him. But what Saul finds out is he's not just fighting against David, he's fighting against God himself. So in this text, 1 Samuel 19, we read that Saul sent his secret police to the house to find David and to kill him. And this is the setting of Psalm 59, which we just read. So imagine, I want you to imagine what it might feel like to be hunted by the ruler of your land. What that would feel like. David is being hunted by the king with all of his, of his resources. He sees David as a threat to his rule and his power. Imagine what that must feel like. Well, it wasn't just something David experienced. It's something that's always been around, even in our country. Although we may not see it quite so much now, in varying degrees we might in the future feel the same emotions David felt of being hunted by those who God had appointed, in fact, to protect us. It actually does seem to be increasing in our own land the use of the government to prosecute and persecute its own citizens. During wars, this has always been relevant. During wars, presidents have always consumed power, increased power, consolidated power, and squashed dissents from the Civil War to World War II to 911 and now the pandemic. We see suppression of dissenting opinions in each time, each place in our history. Applying pressure on newspapers, radio, television now, media, all kinds of outlets. Being pressured to silence opposing ideas. Limiting the free speech, the free press, the freedom of religion that we enjoy in this place. And now using, it seems, the federal government, the arms of the federal government, the courts, the departments, the bureaus, to persecute or intimidate political opponents, to squelch dissent or competing ideas, intimidation, threats of jail, threats of arrest, 
audits. We're going to send the IRS after you. We're going to take all of your money. In our day, it's sanitized by more complicit media and whatnot. But for David, it was just flat out. He was hunted by his government. He was hunted by the king. But the reality is there's nothing new under the sun. We shouldn't be surprised if this ever happens in our own country. It's the way things happen, especially for the people of God. So I'm just going to look at the first five verses of this psalm this week. We'll see that David's enemies are actually God's enemies. In other words, it's God's fight. We don't have to fight. We don't need guns. I mean, I have guns, but we don't need guns to fight. God fights his battles. God fights our battles. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're spiritual. We're on our knees before our Lord. That's how we fight. We fight with love and forgiveness and the things we talked about this morning. And we realize that God will fight for us. We don't have to fight ourselves. So David's enemies are God's enemies. We'll look at four things. First, I'll show you that it's right to call on God all the time. Call on him. Open your mouth and pray. Secondly, we'll see that it's personal for David. This is a personal thing. He was persecuted personally. He felt it. But it was also personal for God. Thirdly, I'll show you that the injustice against David was great. And he knows it. And he wants God to know it. And fourthly, it's okay for us to ask God, Lord, how long will I have to go through this? How long will we suffer? It's okay to ask that question. It's okay to pray that prayer. God condescends to hear our prayers of all kinds. So let's look at the first point. It's right to call on God. This is what David does in the first three verses of this psalm. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. David isn't fearing intimidation or threats or confiscation of his property or anything. He's fearing his own life. He's fearing death. Saul's using all the powers at his disposal to hunt David down. And to kill him. And we sense in these verses that there's a helplessness about David. He's reached the end of his own efforts. He's surrounded. They are surrounding the house that he's in. There's nowhere else he could go. There's no power on earth that can deliver him. The king was after him. Where could he go? So he calls out to God appropriately. He calls to his God. The God who has covenanted with his people to deliver them. He's covenanted with the children of Abraham to preserve them and keep them. We are the children of Abraham. We have been grafted into Abraham by faith. These covenant promises apply to us. He calls upon a faithful God to deliver him. He calls upon his good shepherd. But these men he rightly calls those who work evil. He says they're bloodthirsty Literally, they're men of blood. They seek to take his life. So it's right to call on God, especially when you feel threatened for your life, but in any way. And let's not be romantic about what's going on here. The same words used to describe David's intent against Goliath. And Samuel, Paul, or Saul uses those same words 
to describe his intent to kill David. So let's not slip into some good story fairy tale mentality that this is somehow just a kind of cute little narrative and what a great psalm this is. These men were sent to kill David, to kill him. He's surrounded. And after they kill him, they would have to give proof that they had done so. How did they do that in that time? Cut off the head, cut off a part of the body, and take it to the king. Remember, he had recently provided proof that he killed 200 Philistines to King Saul to marry his daughter. David knows this all too well. He's a man of war. He's seen blood. He knows if they get in the house, they're going to cut him with swords until he's dead and probably cut off his head. So this is a, this is a life and death situation, and his death would be of the most gruesome kind. And he's scared. And he's calling out to God. Brother, sister, when you are scared for any reason, call out to God. We see, too, in these first five verses, and this is point two, that it's personal. It's very personal what's happening. Obviously, it's personal. It's his life. It's personal for David. It's not just a generality. It's not just a general problem. He thinks he might die. He uses the pronoun me in these first five verses. He says, me, my, I mostly me, 12 times in the first five verses. 12 times. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. They lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. No transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. Awake and come to meet me and see. This is a very personal thing in David's life. And we see that in this pronoun that's used over and over and over again. This is an attack on him. It's an attack on his person. He felt it personally. He personally cried to God. And he wanted God to help him personally, not generally the church, not his wife, Him. He needed help. And David seeks deliverance from his God. Not just God, his God. And this is important. David knows that God values him as a person. Our faith is personal. I remember being in Thailand and watching people walk into this temple and bow down and pray to this big gold statue. Scary looking. And it felt very impersonal. I mean, of course, it felt demonic. That's not our God. We have a personal God. He's one God in three persons, and He loves His people. He saves real people. Us. Real individuals. In Psalm 17, David says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, keep me as the apple of your eye. This is David's understanding of who he was in God's eyes. He was the apple of God's eye. 
Imagine that. I mean, you could just think on that all night tonight. That if you have faith in Christ, you are the apple of God's eye. Not, not the, the son or the daughter who just keeps disappointing God over and over again. Not the son or the daughter who he's just really hoping gets it together. No, you're the apple of his eye. It's precious. So this isn't just personal for David, but this is personal for God as well. We see this highlighted in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, talking of Israel, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You see, the same principle applies to David and to us. Anyone who touches you touches the apple of God's eye. David is comforted by this knowledge of God, comforted by God's love for him. And so should we be in every situation of life. We should never think that anything we're going through in life doesn't actually matter to God. If you have a splinter and it really hurts and you pray, Lord, this is painful. Don't think that that's a wasted prayer. That, something that small matters. He knows you so well. Why wouldn't you pray for everything? Considering his love, it's personal for David when he's attacked, and it's personal for God. I love the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. See how, just how personal that is? That is just distilling the Psalms into that answer. We cry out to God when we're in distress, and our God loves us and answers. But David also, this third point, reminds God of his innocence in this situation. We see the injustice of a fallen world. Think of all the unjust murders and imprisonments that are found all through the Bible. Almost the very first thing that happens, Cain murders innocent Abel right from the start. And it's going to be like that until the very end. Joseph is unjustly sold as a slave and imprisoned. All of the prophets are unjustly murdered. There's great injustice in this world. And I don't mean in the political sense. I mean against the people of God. Jeremiah is unjustly thrown into a well. And later murdered. Zechariah is unjustly sawn in two. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are unjustly thrown into a furnace. Daniel is unjustly thrown into the den of lions. John the Baptist is unjustly beheaded by Herod. Jesus is unjustly murdered by the Jews and the Romans. And all the apostles since then, all the twelve apostles since then, the pastors, the Christians, who have been unjustly martyred because of the gospel, it's all the same. It's the same enemy. It's just life 
of a God follower in a fallen world. There's going to be injustice because we're Christians and the world hates us. So David knew that this pursuit by Saul was unjust. And he tells God, he says, this is not right. What this man is doing is wrong. It says in verse 3, No transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine. They run and make ready. So he's claiming innocence in this situation. Certainly he's not saying that he's morally perfect. We know that. Later in his life, he commits some heinous sins, and he sinned many times before this. But it's saying he loves God. And because he loves God and God has put his love in him, that he loves what God loves and he hates what God hates. And he's striving to live before Yahweh with integrity. And he's calling out to God. And he's proclaiming his innocence in this situation. In the case of Saul, he makes this case. Saul isn't attacking me because I've wronged him, because I'm seeking to take the throne from him. Indeed, David is even innocent regarding the throne, although he's been anointed to be the next king. He knows he's going to be the next king. He's been anointed by Samuel. But this is not something he's grasping for. He's trusting in God and his providence to bring this thing about whenever God plans to do it. He isn't pursuing hard after that at all. He's simply attempting to serve God and king and country to the best of his ability. And we'll later see in 1 Samuel that he has ample opportunities to kill Saul. And he doesn't. Rather, he protects him. He doesn't want to lay any hand on the Lord's anointed. In other words, God, if God's going to do this, God's going to do it. I'm not going to touch the man, even though he's trying to kill me. And so much does he value God's providence in this situation that anyone who does come to him and say, I killed Saul, I killed Jonathan, I killed innocent people, usually David has them killed himself. So he's not a striver, he's not ambitious, he's not seeking power. He's innocent of these charges. And ironically, he's going to protect Saul throughout his life. And yet, Saul wants to kill him. This isn't right. It's unjust. So I think in this, there's much to be commended for us as we live in this world. I mean, we live in a pretty awesome time. Certainly, it's not as wonderful as it once was. But even in this environment, we still can worship. We still can live. We still can buy and sell we don't have anyone throwing us in prison because we love jesus we're not being actively persecuted like david we should attempt to live at peace with all men even people who seek our harm we should uphold a godly standard in relationships trusting god seeking the good of others before ourselves even our enemies this is what david's saying i've only ever sought the good of saul he's trying to kill me And yet I'm trusting you, God, so I'm going to continue to seek the good of Saul. He knows that God's for him, so he's not striving with Saul for power, riches, or wealth. He's humbly serving wherever God had planted him. And he trusts God for the results. We should pursue the same things David did, godliness and holiness, integrity, live humbly before God and man, trusting God for anything that he's promised us, not striving, not grasping at all the blessings that we think we owe, we owe ourselves or God owes us. We shouldn't be fighting with our enemies, really, at all. We should be praying for them. Vengeance belongs to God. 
We should be confident. He will answer us. He will protect us. He will preserve us. He will. And even if he doesn't answer that prayer the way we want, there have been a lot of martyrs who prayed for deliverance, and God delivered them in a different way than they wanted. So even if the prayer isn't answered exactly how we would want it, that doesn't mean that his promises are not true. He uses persecution and even suffering for his own glory and his own kingdom. So we need to trust God the way David did. All the prophets, all the people I mentioned, they trusted God. Jesus trusted God to protect and answer him as well. And we should when we are beset by our enemies. Finally, if you feel like this is just continuing, like you're constantly under pressure, a physical ailment, a a distress at work, or just relationships, people are always against you. Or you feel beset in other ways. And this is continued. It's okay to ask God, how long? Lord, how long do I have to do this? How long until you meet me? David does this throughout the Psalms. Indeed, it's found throughout Scripture. Hurry, how long? This is the fourth point. Awake, verse 4, awake, come to me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. David asked in verse 1 for God to deliver him, and he's not going to give up. He refuses to give up on this request. Just because you've prayed something a few times and you don't see a change, don't give up. Keep praying. As our dear sister Robin told us, she prayed for her husband's salvation for years. I think 13 years and... Yeah, that long. Yeah, who's counting? Keep praying. Keep praying to God in your distress. And it may feel tiring and pray for strength to keep praying more. Persistence is valued. He hears your prayers. So David asks again and again and again. This reminded me of my grandson, Alexander. They call him Xander. Molly has four children. The oldest is four years old. The second boy, they're both those first two. Well, the first is a boy. The second, Kate, is a girl. She's almost three. She'll be three next month. Uh, Alexander, Xander, is 17 months old. He's the third. And then the baby's three months old. Molly's been busy. So, Emmy would say the third child is the forgotten child in a big family. I don't know you other people who have big families, if you would agree, but Xander certainly fits that. He fits that mold. His little brother, Jack, is only a few months old. Jack gets a lot of attention. Mason is into everything. He gets a lot of attention. Kate is the only girl. She's a princess. She gets a lot of attention. Xander is pretty self-sufficient. He just can be okay by himself. He doesn't need a lot. He's kind of forgotten. He's pretty easy. He's often overlooked, or at least he seems to feel that way, it seems. Mary Kay, when she was last at the house, she said, Xander, who's just now walking, I guess, for a few months, he would walk around to anyone and just say, look, look, just wanting someone to look at him. Who knows if he really needs something? He might really need something. He wants someone to notice him. 
It's okay for us to pray like that. This is what David is praying. He's praying, look, look at me in my distress. Look at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 is a, is a wonderful verse. In the Hebrew, usually the verb comes first. Almost always the verb comes first, and then all of the subjects and the nouns and everything else. But the verb is the first word in almost every sentence. When it's not like that, it's for emphasis. It's, a, it's an emphatic point. And in verse 5, it's not like that. The verb does not come first. What comes first? Literally, you talking to God. You. Yahweh, Elohim. You, Lord God of armies. You, Lord God of armies. God of Israel. Awake! That's the Hebrew. He says, you, Lord God of armies, God of Israel, awake, remember me, look, remember your promises. The God of all heavenly armies. David is saying, you own all armies that are capable of doing anything in the world. Look at me, help me. And he uses these personal names for God. The Masoretes, who would later um, write down the word of God, over they wouldn't even write Yahweh. They would write a little other word for it. They were so afraid of saying the name or writing the name. David calls out to Yahweh over and over and over again, using the personal name of God, Yahweh. The supreme God with all the heavenly host at his disposal. The angel armies of God. The God of Israel. And he's, he's calling him the God of Israel because this implies all the covenant promises to Abraham. All the covenant promises to Abraham fulfilled in the nation of Israel. Now in the church, he's saying, come, look at me. We are your chosen people. I am one of your chosen people. You are the covenant keeping, keeping God. Remember your promises. How long? Awake! How long? Hundreds of years later, Zechariah, when he was a prophet in the restored nation of Israel, they had been exiled, then they had come back. After the exile and return, they were in great distress. They're again surrounded by enemies all about them. And the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, comes to Zechariah in a vision. The angel of the Lord said in Zechariah 1, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the, the angel of the Lord, Christ is saying on behalf of Israel, in the presence of Zechariah, how long? How long, Lord? And what's God's response? Verse 13 of chapter 1. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. You see, the struggles of Israel were not unnoticed by God. Your struggles are not unnoticed by God. David's struggles are not unnoticed by God. He was with them, watching them, tenderly caring for them, jealous for their love and comfort. It seemed from the human perspective it was taking a long time. And yet God is working all things perfectly in perfect time. It's just hard to wait. It's hard to be patient. 
We need to learn something from the angel of the Lord, from Christ, about his intercession, his prayer. Christ taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. And we can learn from this prayer in Zechariah as well. We can cry out, how long? How long, O God? We can cry out to him. If he has purchased you with his own blood, you will hear kind and comforting words coming from God's word in the midst of your anguish. Just read Revelation. Just read Revelation chapter 6. The angels, the, the angels are present and they're hearing the slain saints before the throne saying, How long, God? How long until you avenge our blood with the wicked on the earth? It seems like this is an okay prayer for us to pray as well. And I'll conclude with this. We're even more confident in this prayer because God is jealous for His people. Again, in Zechariah chapter 1, the angel was speaking, said to me, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy. The house will be rebuilt. Measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. My towns will overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. It seems like a long, long time. They're crying out, how long, Lord? And God had purposed blessing for His people. Because He's jealous for Jerusalem. I'm jealous for His people. He's jealous for us. He sees everything that's going on in your life and He's jealous for you. Certainly when you stray from the truth, He's jealously like a, a husband going to pursue a, a bride who is strayed or something like that. But also in the sense that He loves His people. And when someone persecutes them, He's jealous for them. I remember watching someone in our neighborhood, I think it was in Kadena in Japan, and David or one of the girls was being chased by a kid or something. And I've never seen my wife run out of the house so fast. She was going to get that guy. She was jealous for her children's safety. God is how much more jealous for his own people. Packer says that this is a kind of jealousy that's a zeal to protect a love relationship and to avenge it when it's broken. So when we're persecuted in any way, we know that comfort is around the corner. We need to pray to God and keep praying to God because he is very jealous in his covenant love for his people. He's established a remnant even in this day and he will preserve it and protect it. We need to remember that God has chosen us just as he has chosen David God loves us even in the midst of trials and tribulations. He's jealous for us. We're the apple of his eye. We have nothing to fear. God is on our side. So be strong and courageous. Let me summarize the four points. It's right to call out to God when we're surrounded or attacked. It's personal for God when we're attacked. It was personal for David, certainly. They sought his life, but it was also personal for God. Those who seek your evil and harm are opposed by God himself. Thirdly, the injustice will be great in life against the people of God. Our call is not to fight, but to maintain our integrity before God, to pursue godliness and holiness and pray. And fourthly, when we cry out to God how long, we are confident that he will answer. God is our avenger. He is 
the one who protects and guides. He loves his people. He's jealous for all of his people. He's jealous for us. We're the apple of his eye. So be encouraged and let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are encouraged by your word. We're encouraged by our brother David. We thank you for raising up this holy man, preserving his life, for giving him the talent and the ability to write psalms that also show us wonderful things about our Savior and about your character. Lord, we're so grateful to have them and we're grateful for your word. We pray that we would take great courage in this life, that we'd be strong and courageous. We'd remember that you'll be with us wherever we go. I pray that we would live godly, holy, and righteous lives, and yet when we fail, we would run straight to the cross remembering what you have done for your people. You've redeemed us, you've purchased us, and we are yours. So give us hope, give us courage, and courage and strengthen our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.